With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Happy Friday. Uncle Jimmy's here with me as always. 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 We have a fabulous Friday show planned for you. We're going to roll out to Texas and talk to State Representative Steve Toth about the critical race theory feud going on in the state of Texas. And we're going to roll to uh, Washington, D.C. and bring in the real star star of this, this show, Delano Squires. I got a new nickname. I'm calling Professor Delano. Uh, Professor, Professor D. D. Yeah. Professor D. Professor D. All right. But before we do any of that, of course, I got a fire I want to start. So according to this country's newspaper of record, the New York Times, America is systemically racist and has been since 1619. President Joe Biden Vice President Kamala Harris, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, former President Barack Obama, former First Lady Michelle Obama, the six members of the U.S. House of Representatives who call themselves the squad, CNN, MSNBC, ESPN, Nike, the NBA, the NFL, our highest academic institutions, and best of all, black Twitter, all of them in some way support the New York Times narrative on America. And you wonder why football star DeAndre Hopkins is reluctant to take the COVID vaccine. No mystery here. Hopkins' skepticism of the efficacy of the vaccines makes perfect sense. As a black man, he's been programmed to distrust the motives and deeds of the country that enriched him. When he turns on his television, pops an app on his smartphone, or listens to his favorite R&B hip-hop radio station, he's overwhelmed by anti-American sentiment. America, Uncle Jimmy, America's Derek Chauvin. Oh boy. And Hopkins is George Floyd. Uh Uh-oh. Hopkins' racist country sees him as a violent drug addict who must be subdued by any means necessary. I'd question his sanity if he enthusiastically took the vaccine. On Thursday, the Arizona Cardinals receiver and several other NFL players reacted to the league's heavy-handed approach pushing vaccinations on its players. A league memo said that teams with COVID outbreaks caused by unvaccinated players could lead to forfeitures of games and forfeitures of paychecks. Hopkins wasn't real thrilled. He tweeted, never thought I would say this, but being in a position to hurt my team because I don't want to partake in the vaccine is making me question my future in the NFL. Hopkins is an eight-year NFL veteran on pace for a Hall of Fame career. So far, he's earned approximately $85 million. 
He's real happy. But he deleted his tweet and then posted another one with just a single word, freedom, with a question mark. Los Angeles Rams all-pro cornerback Jalen Ramsey, who is also black, tweeted, I know two people right now who got the vaccine but are COVID positive. I'm just saying, I wouldn't look at a teammate as bad if he don't take the vax. No pressure from number five. I get where these guys are coming from. It makes perfect sense. For a time, the, the anti-vaccination movement was framed by corporate media as a MAGA movement, as the resistance of angry white males. Corporate media did this despite statistics showing the black man and woman are the most reluctant Americans to get the shot. Once again, as always, corporate media are lying. Are you surprised? You shouldn't be. Corporate media, your favorite broadcasters on CNN and MSNBC, your favorite reporters and editors at the New York Times, including redheaded Ida Bay Wells, oh boy, constantly wrap black America in a state of racial confusion. America is systemically racist, except when 1994 crime bill writer Joe Biden is in the White House. Oh, Joe, he isn't racist. Good old Joe. Unless she asked Kamala Harris. Oh, that's right. She didn't mean it when she insinuated he was bigoted in their 2019 debate. That was just old-fashioned debating. Nothing to see there. She was just joking. Here's what we know for sure. If Donald Trump still called the White House home, the very people pushing the hardest for NFL players to get vaccinated would take the opposite position. Medicine, like everything else, has been politicized. This isn't a debate about science. It's all a wrestling match over political power. Yesterday, I mentioned the HBO TV show Game of Thrones. Some people couldn't get into the series because of the plot lines around medieval sorcery and fantasy. Bug me too. But the show and the books are really about exposing the depths men and women will sink to in their pursuit of power. History makes it clear. There's nothing humans won't do to acquire power. Nothing. We have and will commit unspeakable atrocities to impose our will on each other. 24-hour race baiting on TV and social media to control a voting bloc? <laughs> That's nothing. Hell, it's downright humanitarian compared to Hitler's tactics. America's most influential institutions have told DeAndre Hopkins, me, and every other black American that we should distrust our homeland. They've said that nothing has really changed in the last 240 years as it pertains to this country's relationship with black people. If America is really that evil, why would anyone, regardless of color, take a vaccine developed here and advocated for by our government? The people pushing the vaccines are the bad guys, not DeAndre Hopkins. Uncle Jim? What you got? What you think? That's a that's a touchy subject, man. <laughs> that's a honest to God. That, that's a honest to God. That's a touchy subject. I mean, because you got a lot of people that have lost. You know, it's a 
it's a touchy subject because you got people that will tell you that they've lost loved ones and that, 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 that's the first and you almost become unsympathetic when you say that you know how how dare you and i to me honestly man just let me just let me get this right okay okay so white man has been trying to kill black people since the beginning of time that, that's what that's what we've been of america that's certainly the argument yes okay mm-hmm. but now we supposed to believe them because they're trying to save us. Yes. Mm, I'm, <laughs> I'm rolling with DeAndre on this one here. I'm rolling with DeAndre. If we, see, see, the one thing is if I take this shot, I might end up like one of them, like, like them black people on Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, Unix. Yeah, whatever yeah. you called it. Yeah, Unix. L- listen, I, I, honest to goodness, this is, and I know that Certain people, I, I, you know, posted the column and people on Twitter are like, well, what about the Tuskegee experiment? And, and all of that plays a role in terms of, for those of you who know, the syphilis was injected into black men during the Tuskegee uh, experiment in the early 1900s. And there is some residual effects of that, of people being, being skeptical. But I, I, I don't think that's what's really driving the skepticism. I, I honest. And, and again, there's a multitude of things driving the skepticism, but I do think all of this nonstop beating the drums of America's racist, America's racist, it's systemically racist, it's baked into everything about America. Oh, but America has this vaccine that's gonna save black people and Joe Biden, everybody's begging us to take it. You can't preach both messages. You it's that good for us. How in the hell, if it's that good, why the hell are they begging us to take it? <laughs> that would be my question. I mean, seriously, it, let's just be real. It, look, you could say it's out of the goodness and kindness of their hearts and they're doing what, they're just trying to save people. But, but you can't tell me that and then also tell me that this country is irredeemably, ra- irredeemably racist and evil. And again, the same people are making that all are insisting everybody take this vaccine are the same people saying don't trust us and and these very same people when Trump was in office they were on the record of being skeptical of the vaccine this was developed these vaccines were developed under Trump's warp speed project and so it it's like November 23rd decided whether the vaccines were good or not. Because literally, if the vote and the election had gone a different way on November 3rd, I said the 23rd, November 3rd, if the, if the election had gone a different way on November 3rd, we'd be hearing a completely different argument from corporate media. And so I, I don't blame DeAndre Hopkins, uh, Jalen Ramsey, Cole Beasley, any of these guys, and Cole Beasley's white, but but the same message, don't trust the government, don't trust the government, that's being shouted out to all of us, but trust this government vaccine that is an experimental vaccine, hasn't, I don't think it's been improved by the FDA as of yet. I, I, I just think we've created an environment of distrust and, and, and again, they, they want to accuse certain groups, oh, that's a conspiracy theory, and you're just a conspiracy theorist, and you got a tinfoil hat on. But the stuff we argue, 
that's just facts. America is racist. And they're just out killing black people in the sky. Everybody's Derek Chauvin. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's facts. One thing, I just want to say this. And this is about me and this, because you and I have our, our conversations. And I think the thing that changed my mind about this whole coronavirus thing is I said to you, I said, I'll know how real this thing is after this election. I said, after this election, if they come up with a cure, then you know it was some BS going on. <laughs> after November, man, between November and January, we done had three. We done had three cures come up. We ain't had none, but all of a sudden between November, oh, we got a cure. Really? I thought you couldn't have one. But then all of a sudden, as soon as the election was over, y'all had a cue. Y'all, y'all knew what was going on. Jim, about. let's keep it all the way real. The other part of that discussion was like, man, I got some friends and family members. They ain't stopped doing nothing during this whole COVID deal. And unless 75% of them end up dead. Okay, now I said that. I was serious. Hey, man, look. I mean, me and you in California, lockdown. <laughs> I had family members, man, they taking pictures. They still out partying at the finite. They still going, to, hey, man, you know what? I need some of y'all to die. <laughs> I, I, according to statistics, y'all overweight, you're black, you smoke, you got, you got the sugar, you should die. They still here. All of them fools. <laughs> They still All right, well, let's roll out to Chicago because Greg Couch, our fearless columnist and contributor, he's written a, a, a different uh, column about COVID and the NFL's reaction uh, yesterday. He, he compared it to uh, the wild, wild west, that Twitter is now the wild, wild west. I want to bring Greg into the, to the conversation. Jason, you know we got to bring Greg. To, to, to the picnic. You do know that. Yeah, great. Well, he's got the right hair for it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He got to come, man. He's come six on. foot four, and if we had a pickup basketball game. Oh, man, he, boy, if he, if he can, boy, my auntie's going to be on him like a white rice. Come on, man. <laughs> and he's six foot four, he can help with the pickup basketball game. All right, Greg, uh, we'll start here. <laughs> I forgot he married. <laughs> <laughs> can we blame Biden, Obama, New York Times? Can, the, the argue, my gist of my argument, can I blame those people? Uh, for for NFL players' vaccine skepticism. I mean, I agree that I agree with your distrust and distaste for those people, but I think you've really shrank the scope too far. I mean, look, there's uh, there's socioeconomic issues. Ezekiel Elliott said that his family never got vaccines his whole life, and and now he's got them, so the Cowboys will be good, and he won't hurt the team. But he said you're going to convince my whole family to to get vaccines they never have, and so. I, you know, I think there's it's a bigger picture, and I also think that fear and distrust, and distaste, are are uh, the primary sort of the primary emotions in our lives. And I think that it's not just black people who don't trust institutions; it's white people too. And that's why Trump became the president in the first place. So you can sit here and 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 put it on 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 these modern media and all that, but th- that's been going on for decades. Also, I mean, look back at Nixon when he's rounding up black people and putting them in jail because he doesn't want them to vote for, uh, you know, against him. And this has happened a long time before Joe Biden started having his crime bill or before Kamala Harris started putting black people in prison, uh, you know, for small drug charges in California. 
So I guess where I'm disagreeing with you a little bit is where do you think things changed? I mean, it's just 150 years ago, black people were still property under the law. And then we're talking about 1960s with Nixon. So you can say 70s, you know, Biden. But I mean, are you saying that there was systemic racism and then it stopped? And then we started up again and because Biden was in a, in a you know, in a laboratory somewhere and created it. I, I, I have a hard time just ex accepting why you're putting it on the Democrats and on the liberals when I think this has been going on for a long time. I, I think the best point you made was distrust of institutions led to Donald Trump being elected president. So you're absolutely right. This extends beyond black and white. There's an overall skepticism in America that leads to distrust of institutions and distrust of the government. Where I would push back is I wasn't really trying to be narrow. I was more trying to be a bit sarcastic and just acknowledge that there is a danger to this caricature of America that the media keeps promoting. You can't keep, because like the distrust of institutions that led to Trump being elected, the corporate media, oh, well that distrust is just crazy. And, it, it's, and Donald Trump shouldn't do that and people shouldn't do that. But the distrust that we're promoting that, oh, black America, this country is just, unrepentantly racist and you can't trust a damn thing America does because they're going to redline you and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. I'm just basically trying to call BS on both sides. You've actually done a better job and helped me out because I, I, I do love the point of Donald Trump and his rise to power is based on a, a similar skepticism. Your column uh, somewhat argues or kind of strong. You take DeAndre Hopkins and Cole Beasley to task, and, and I'm more defensive of those guys. They have a right to express their concerns, their point of view, their fears, but it seems like you're arguing that they're wrong for using their platforms in this way. I, I didn't mean to argue that. I think they're right for it. That's one of the things that makes America great, the freedom to express yourself, the freedom to believe in whatever religion you want. These guys are using the platforms that, that they're allowed to use, and it's great that they have their own voice. My only real problem is that we're, it is a Wild West, and this t Twitter's become the OK Corral. And I'm just not really sure that anyone's paying a lot of attention to what they're saying. You've got Jamel Hill coming in there with a comment saying, well, you know, let me get this straight. These, uh, Hopkins is going to quit the NFL to avoid taking a, uh, a vaccine that works, that's effective, in her opinion. But at the same time, he's going to go out and play football and risk his his head by, you know, with all the concussions and the brain injuries. She's not paying attention. He's she's talking about science. He's hmm. he would say, well, yeah, I, I want to have the freedom of choice. And so I have the freedom of choice on the vaccine and I have the freedom of choice to risk my injury on my body both times to risk injury playing football. So she's not listening to him. He's not listening to her. And it's just, they're just crossing, a, you know, it's like, like I said, it's the okay corral. These people are all shooting each other, Jason, but they're just not, they're not hitting. They're not connecting. They're just missing. And the NFL is even getting involved with their sort of heavy handedness. And it's just everyone's standing in different corners shooting and they're missing. It's embarrassing. Not a bad point. I, I, I think it leads to, to me, I, I like the Twitter as the okay corral. Uh, because to me, Twitter has taken us backwards. Social media has taken us backwards. 
we, we don't, it's, it's devalued communication. It's dumbed down information. It's, it's, you know, we got this whole debate going about misinformation. Well, what's the headquarters for misinformation? It's social media platforms. That's where it all, that, that's the, the farmland, the, the, the ground or ground zero, the Mecca for misinformation. And we, and as a journalist, what's offensive to me is there's just no vetting process that, that, that there's no, you don't earn, it used to be you used, you had to earn an outsized platform to espouse your opinions. And the process for journalists was, oh, well, go out and be a reporter first. Oh, go out and write feature stories first. Go out and develop sources first. Then we'll promote you to a columnist where you get to espouse your opinions, but we're still gonna have three editors overlook anything you say and do, and we'll push back against the opinions you espouse. Well, now you earn a platform to have your opinion outsized, by playing football, by dunking a basketball, by starring in a movie, by creating a great rap song or rock song. Give and a great lap dance. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Cardi B, yes. And then all you have to do to push publish is whip out your cell phone and there's nobody overlooking anything you say. And I, my overall narrative is the social media platforms, in my view, have been bad for athletes Ask, I'm going to ask you, good or bad for athletes, these social media platforms? I mean, they're bad for athletes, but they could be good for athletes. If they were if they were used properly, if they used their PR guys would help them pick out exactly what to say. And sort of, I think they should go through their PR guys for everything they're going to say. I agree with you 100 percent with what you said. I went to journalism school and you, you take journalism law classes, you take uh, re- beginning reporting classes, you go to city council meetings and try to write a story overnight. You, you have to get two sources for every little fact that you have. And you, you don't just throw things out there and you, you, you prove sort of a structure uh, as a journalist and then hopefully you've earned your right to be a columnist. And you and I were both newspaper columnists, but we got there through, you know, through our hard work and through uh, learning the basis of journalism. You're right. These guys have, be, you know, Twitter is is the new journalism, the the new fake media in a lot of ways because newspapers are dying. Again, we just talked about uh, industries and people's lack of trust. I live here in Chicago. The Chicago Tribune is the paper I grew up reading. I, okay, I work for the Chicago Sun Times. I should have said I read the Sun Times when I grew up. But uh, you know, the Tribune is is you know a skeleton of itself now. They're laying everybody off. So people aren't really going to the newspapers anymore, obviously. They're going to social media. You've got a guy, you know, in in Hopkins who's got 475,000 people who are willing to call themselves followers of him. And, you know, here he is, the the ultimate authority, just because of what you just said, because he's famous or because he, you know, he can can score a touchdown or, or whatever. All you have to do is have a Twitter handle and be famous, and you suddenly vetted it instead of entire journalism school. So, yeah, I think it's dangerous, and it's been bad, but I don't really think it has to be. And listen, I know it's more difficult for you to say this than it is for me, or it's more high risk for you, but the, the only thing where I will push back is you, you argued, well, they should go through their PR people. And all I heard was like, yeah, they should become more inauthentic. And, and, and I don't think anybody would argue that. We, we don't want more inauthenticity from athletes. What I want them to do, Honestly, well, I want DeAndre Hopkins to talk about nine routes and scoring touchdowns. 
and uh, what he does to stay in shape, how he gets along with his teammates. I want LeBron James to talk about dunking the basketball. Uh, I want him to talk about uh, what he does to stay in such great shape, how he's training his son. There's a bunch of stuff that LeBron's an expert on. He can talk about Space Jam. Terrible movie, according to some people. He ain't good. He can't speak on that. He can talk about it, but he's an expert on it. What I don't need him talking about is a bunch of stuff he knows nothing about. Go ahead, Greg. Jason, he's going to talk about it. You can say that, but they're not going to just do that. They're not just going to dribble a basketball. They're not just going to explain how the blocking schemes work. He's going to use his his uh, you know his platform in talking. So I think you're right. I, I wish I could back off on what I said about PR, but maybe maybe the NFL could could give classes for these guys and they can learn some sort of journalism standards going into this thing. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> they. It, they're not interested in journalism. Well, that Greg got a sense of humor. He really he? does. Well, that Greg funny as hell, boy. You know, you know what Greg what? needs to have happen to him? It would, it would be he would think it would be a blessing, but he needs to. God needs he to need back to get a case of child support. <laughs> he needs to. God needs to back him up to age 18, 19, 20, hand him millions of dollars, and then think that some NFL executive, coach, or whatever is going to be able to tell him a damn thing to do. These guys all think that they're the greatest human beings in the world. Why else would they be so blessed? How else could it? Well, maybe you just hit the genetics lottery. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the explanation. Last question, Greg. Yeah. Is the NFL, with their heavy-handed approach of, you know, you're going to forfeit games if, if, if your team has to – has COVID outbreaks from unvaccinated players. We, we potentially could take the players' paycheck. Is the NFL being too heavy-handed here with its players? I don't think they are. I mean, look, this is a business decision. This is a business making business decisions. And when COVID started last year, all the talk was, you know, what's going to happen to these businesses? Or that somehow we have to protect them, leave them alone, to, uh, operate themselves, uh, you know, so they don't go under. And I know the NFL is not anywhere near going under, but they're just making business decisions. They want the games to happen. They want the fans to pay the tickets. They want people to gamble on the games. They want people to buy beers. They want the games on TV. So, you know, they've got every they're staying within the law. I, I like it. I like what they're doing. And, you know, these players are complaining about their freedom. And this no one's forcing these guys to get to get a vaccine. They're forced. They, they're not going to jail if they don't get a vaccine. They're nothing's about their rights are being violated. They're just you know, look, you got to do things at work that you don't want to do sometimes. And that's all that's happening here. So I, I have no problem with the, what the NFL is doing. They want their business operating and, and employees are just complaining that they don't want to have to do what the bosses want them to do. This has been happening from the beginning of time. Mm. I, 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 Greg, we're going to let you go because I got to go. We got to go to uh, Delano, but I disagree in terms of <laughs> the, m- there should be some sort of medical freedom for all of us here. It just seems like we're making up the new rules as we go on without any, oh, COVID happened. So let's all the old rules, let's throw them out. There is no medical privacy. There is no, hey, my body, my choice. None, all that gets thrown out the window because COVID happened. And this, to me, COVID, Sam, sounds a lot like 9-11. Let's, let's, oh, my God, 9-11 happened? You have no right to privacy. I can listen to whatever I want to on your phone. I can do whatever I want because we got to protect the country. I, I, Jason, I'm with no Cole Beasley. I'm with DeAndre Hopkins. What? No one's forcing them to get the shots. There, there's nothing, there's no law forcing them to get the shots. They don't have to get the shots. Not yet. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's for right now. 
Let me just get Cole Beasley, DeAndre Hopkins, uh, Jalen Ramsey. I'm with you. Me and Uncle Jimmy are with you. Greg's a sellout. All right, throw it up, Greg. Throw it up, man. Come on. Greg, throw it up, man. You ain't coming to the picnic if you don't. All right, then. Let me tell you about my good friends over at Built Bar, Uncle Jimmy, because I had another Built Bar just today. I know you did. I, I was going to see if you lied. I came in here on a fast, and so I had a Built Bar to get me ready for this show. You know, I've talked about these guys a lot here this week. But what can I say? When you're good, you're good. And I'm good, and so is Built Bar. Low in calories, low in sugars and carbs. These things shouldn't be this good. They should taste as bland and as chalky as some of those other protein bars you get at the grocery store. But they're not. They're not. They're just not like that. They sent us their mix box, and I'm having a damn good time trying all the different flavors that they have. These are some of the best protein bars I've personally tasted and helped keep me going during the day. Built Bar are also the new official partner with the U.S. Olympic track and field teams for this year's Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo that start today. Go to Built.com and use the promo code FEARLESS to save 15% off your first order. Use promo code FEARLESS for 15% off at Built.com. That grasshopper's fire. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. All right, time for my second favorite part of the show. You know I love Uncle Jimmy's Bible stories the most. Uh, But Professor, I'm going to start calling this guy Professor Delano Squires because he's the smartest guy on the show. We're bringing Delano back from Washington, D.C. to pick up some conversation we left off uh, from yesterday and some new conversation. I want to start, Delano, with talking about Kevin Samuels the famous YouTuber who, who basically talks about relationship and image issues as it relates to black men and black women and just image issues in general about carrying yourself like a man. And uh, well, his, his YouTube channel is really popular. I call him the new Steve Harvey. Well, he's known for being somewhat critical of black women. And so guess what? Now there's a petition on change.org to shut Kevin Samuels down. Let me read directly from the petition. With the rise in violence against women, specifically African-American women, YouTuber Kevin Samuels has galvanized a community of men of all races and nationalities in the outspoken hatred of women. Removing this voice of divisive vitriol will allow women to feel safer not only in public spaces, but in online communities as well. (laughs) This thing has 13,000 signatures so far. They're shooting for 15,000. I think this is crazy. I've Hmm. watched Kevin Samuels. I turned my brother and his wife on to Kevin Samuels. They love it. Can't say they agree with everything Kevin Samuels says, but they enjoy it and don't find it offensive. But even if it is offensive, I just don't think the solution is, hey, let's ban Kevin Samuels. Delano, your thoughts. So it's interesting that with this petition to ban Kevin Samuels and get him off of YouTube, um, it shows that consumers actually do have a little more power than um, that, that they lead us to believe. Because when, again, when the conversation is hip hop, 
people throw their hands up and say, well, it's the responsibility of parents to keep their kids from certain type of music. It's the responsibility of execs to not uh, pay for certain types of music. But we never talk about the, the demand side, right? The people who want that type of music. Now on the, on the Kevin Samuel situation, it's clear that there are some people who don't like what he has to say, and their response is to flex their muscle as consumers to get him off of YouTube. Now, again, it's not necessarily the way that I would go, but I mean, they have a right to let their voice be heard. I do think it's interesting that you know people are attacking him because for years we've seen in different magazines and blogs and think pieces people saying um, that you know if a guy doesn't have a certain type of job or make a certain amount of money or have a certain type of education that he's not worthy you know of the the love and affection and a relationship with for the love and affection um, of certain types of women Kevin Samuels is basically flipping the script and for one women call him right they call him and say and lay out the issues they're having with men and he speaks in in a way not necessarily that I would necessarily uh, you know go about it but he talks straight to them and and um, for whatever reason many people he seems to get even more people to come in to call in with their relationship issues um, but again I, I think it's interesting that um, this is the response to him and certainly he is ruffling some feathers um, now, whether his advice is good advice and people use it and are able to find, you know, lasting relationships, that's a different question. But if you look on social media, there's no shortage of people who spend all day using strong language um, and insults and personal attacks uh, to go at people that they don't agree with. And I think from his perspective, he's saying, look, I'm just talking straight to the women who call in uh, for advice from me. And I'm not saying it because I hate them. I'm saying it because I want them to be in, you know, better relationships, and I want them to adjust their expectations. And for whatever reason, there's a market for that type of um, for that type of content. And I think as long as that market exists, then if it's not Kevin Samuels, it'll just be somebody else. Delano, you make an excellent point when you bring hip hop into this because Kevin Samuels, no matter how aggressively he may talk on YouTube or his Instagram live chats. It doesn't come anywhere close to what's said about black women in rap music. And I don't I wonder if these same women that have started this petition, will they start a petition about rap music and rappers? The other part of this thing that, that, that I find fascinating to piggyback off your comment is that uh, for years, We've read countless articles. Oh, my God. There's a shortage of good black men for mm. uh, black women to date. Oh, my. they're not educated enough. They don't have good enough jobs. Uh, they got felonies. They got, I mean, we've heard it all. And there's been a cottage in it. I don't know if Oprah would have a show or of the following she had, if not for some of that <laughs> narrative being out there. And look, there's some truth to what they're arguing. I'm not going, oh my God, shut them down. They can't talk about that. They can't talk about our shortcomings. I, I, I'm not for that. that. Hey, put it in the air. Let's have that debate and discussion and let's elevate. Why can't Kevin Samuels do the exact same thing and say, hey, you know what? There's some things we out of pocket about, but let's mm. talk about what you're out of pocket about. 
what your shortcomings are. And he's built a tremendous following. I do think it's a business decision he's made. I don't think he's some uh, altruistic person or whatever. He's making money off of it. But I do think his intentions are good. I think he want because he started out. Uh, it wasn't he didn't become famous off of it, but he started out. His YouTube channel was basically mostly talking directly to black men about, hey, step your game up, pull your damn pants up, put a sport coat on, present yourself professional. He couldn't build a massive audience doing that. He flipped it up and <laughs> started talking about, hey, you know what? Cover up some of that cleavage. Uh, right. If you really want a high value man, a wealthy man, take some of them pounds off yourself. You're not going to get no high value man at five foot six, 230 pounds. It's just not going to happen. And, and if people can't handle that, if it's too hot in the kitchen, y'all don't want in the kitchen no more anyway. So get the right. hell out. It's, it's, as you said, for years we've heard or seen think pieces saying that, you know, if a guy's in his mid-30s and he's still trying to get his rap career off the ground, that's not the type of guy you want to pay attention to. If he has, you know, multiple children by different women, as you said, if he has a criminal record, if he doesn't have a particular type of job or education, um, people have been very open in saying those types of men should not those types of men should not expect to, to land a Michelle Obama, right? Michelle is out looking for her Barack. And if you're a guy that has any of these things, you should set your sights a little bit lower. I mean, that, that's, that's been part of, part of the mainstream culture, whether it's Cosmo or Essence. Um, that's been out there for, for quite some time. But um, as you said, I, I think, you know, he, he fills a need uh, for some people. Because, uh, again, you won't have over a million subscribers if people don't actually want to listen to what you say. Now, what I hope happens is that Kevin Samuels is one of the people who can open up a broader range of dialogue on relationship issues as it relates uh, to the black community, more generally speaking. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not a person that's against um, interracial dating or interracial marriage. And, and I say that because of, you know, biblical reasons. I believe there's one race, the human race. And there are people from different ethnicities and nationalities, and I don't see anything uh, um, spiritually wrong or biblically wrong with people who marry people from different nationalities. But the fact remains that the majority of the vast majority of black people marry, will marry one another. Um, black men tend to marry outside the black community a little bit more, um, probably, uh, about twice as often as, as black women. But that rate for black women has started to increase over the years. But the fact remains that most black men and women, if they get married, are going to get married to another black person. So if he's able to start that dialogue, um, if he's able to encourage uh, women to look f not just for high value men, because I think that tends to, again, play into the, the, the notion that it's status and so socioeconomic status and education that makes a guy high value. I'm interested in, in hearing him encourage women to seek high values men. So the type of man who is loyal and faithful, um, is solid, right? Who loves God, who wants to, you know, provide for his family. Um, I think we need that conversation, and we need to be cultivating more of uh, that type of idea, um, particularly for our, our young men and young women. And uh, Jason, I think this this plays right into the conversation we were having yesterday about about uh, feminism and how its attack on the family has really 
cause issues in, in the black community. And, I, and it's important for me to say that one of the things that a, a good husband will do is protect, not just lead, but protect his wife and his, and his children. And there's nobody on this earth who, who loves my wife more than me. And, I'm, and she knows that I would die for her and I would die for our kids in, in protecting them. She also knows no bureaucrat or feminist is gonna say the same thing. The feminists only care about her and her decision makings to the extent that they, that they uh, further their agenda. But as soon as she steps outside of the box that they think women should stay in, then they would attack her in the same way that they attack me. And that's why I think we need to have more of an inward focus on our own community, rebuilding our own families, and starting that at a younger age. In the same way that schools don't hesitate to tell kids from kindergarten that 18 years from now, we want you to go to college, right? You'll be the, the, the class of uh, 2039. They, they, they have that as an ideal for students. Strive for this, strive for college, strive for higher education. And they say that whether the students come from families where, where either parent went to college or not, they say that as an aspirational value. I think we should do the same thing when it comes to young people and, and becoming husbands and wives so that that becomes the norm in the same way it was you know, 75 years ago. So when you hear um, you know, a, a black man or a black woman say, you know, I have a baby on the way, the expectation is that, that they are married um, you know, before that baby gets there. So for, for whatever reason, we allowed people with their own agenda, with subversive ideas to take what used to be a buffet, right? You pay one price, you get everything that comes with it. And they broke it into an a la carte menu. So you can have kids without marriage. You can have, um, you can say you don't really know the person, but you want to have a baby with them. I, I think that, I think that this time it's time for us to to reevaluate the extent to which that that type of ideology has served us. Delano, I want to piggyback off a couple things you said. One is going to be a little bit narcissistic, but I got to take this opportunity to do a little personal commercial for myself because Delano said something that I think really envelopes and explains my life and my dating uh, relationships and just experiences. You said high value and we need to be, women need to be looking for men with high values. And I wanna keep us in that same spirit of hip hop and everything. What you basically just described is me. I'm high value and I have high values. <laughs> and so what I've offered to ladies throughout my dating career is the best of both worlds. If you remember the great <laughs> Jay-Z and R. Kelly album, Jason Whitlock mm -hmm. is the epitome of the best of both worlds to you ladies out there that are watching the show. But that provides a good segue in, back into our hip hop discussion. Who's responsible for hip hop's degeneracy, uh, Delano? That was one of the questions I wanted to ask you yesterday. Sure, uh, I think there's a lot of responsibility to go around um, as, as is the case with you know, most complex issues. Uh, I tend to hold the artists most responsible because the lyrics are written with their pens and the words come out of their mouths. They are also the ones who are most vocal about speaking for, uh, speaking for the community and trying to represent us and, and in some ways being leaders in the community. So I, I hold them responsible to a great degree. But I realize that most of them are like most of, you know, most people in general, they're trying to make a buck. I just wish they didn't attempt to make bucks on our backs. So. I, as I said, I hold the artists 
uh, primarily responsible, especially when these are men who call themselves kings, and as I said, oftentimes even gods with a little g, I would expect them, particularly as they get further in their career and they have more leverage and they have more power to say, I can't keep selling my community poison and calling it love. So they bear responsibility. I, 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 mm? I'm gonna disagree with you. And I think the executives are most responsible. And and okay. listen, I've been very critical of Jay-Z and other, other rappers and, you know, Jay-Z, when you ascend to that level, He's one of the executives I'm actually talking about. He should, if he's made the money and has the control that he purports to have, he should change up. But I'm going to blame the executives most because I think these people, rappers, a lot of, they're chosen. That, that, that the executives, hey, you know what? I'm going to make you a star. And this is the type of music I need you to make to be a star. And as much as I hear every rapper use the N-word, you can't convince me that there's not some edict from the industry that <laughs> you gotta use the N-word at least 50% of the time in your rap songs uh, or we just won't support it, we won't put it out. And so I think the executives are most responsible. Let me ask you this, and this segues or plays well off our Kevin Samuels discussion. We're seeing consumers speak out against Kevin Samuels why do why do we support toxic rap artists? What's what's in our mental head and mental space that we won't ever uh, collectively we won't speak out against a style of music and a style of rapper right. who is degrading us in such a massive public way? So a couple of things. I, I actually I want to respond to your um, the, the comment you made about the executives. Because I actually do think the executives bear yeah. a great de deal of responsibility. But I'll say this. When you, I'll use sort of like a financial t uh, example. When you don't know how to manage money, you become somebody else's investment. And I think in the same respect, the executives are just um, taking advantage of what they see as an opportunity in the market. I I'll give a different example, right? There's an there's a organization or company called Race to Dinner. It was founded by two women of color. One woman, I believe, is Indian American, another is um, a black American woman. They charge white liberal women $2,500. And what do those women get for 2,500 bucks? The two women come to their house, right? The dinner is served, and they tell all the women around the table why they're racist. Now, that may seem like a ridiculous way to, to, to spend money and a complete waste, but if you can get a guilty white liberal woman to give you $2,500, there's gonna be somebody who takes advantage of that. And in the same respect, if these execs can get people <laughs> to give them lots of money to have artists who look like them and are supposed to represent them, call them names, degrade them, talk about shooting their sons and getting their, their, their grandsons you know, doped up on, on lean and codeine and promethazine, they're gonna take the money. So in many respects, that's why I say it's a, it's a demand issue. And part of it is a, is a leadership issue because there are also leaders in our community who use rap artists to further their own interests. Now, as I said, they, they would never allow their own children to speak to one another that way, calling them, you know, the B word or the H word or the N word. But when it's time to get out the vote 
or to further some other interest, typically political, because because ours is a community that you know voting is everything. Um, people literally say vote or die. But when it's time to do that, they uh, go out and solicit the services of the rappers because they know that those rappers have influence in our community and they will co-sign the, the rappers and by co-signing their influence, in many respects, they're co-signing their lifestyle and their values. And I think that's another big reason we have that issue. Now on, on the third part, in terms of why do consumers continue to, to listen to that type of music, I think part of this stretches back you know, far into history. And I, and I started to say this on the last show, um, part of it is just artists and entertainers have had a different type of role in the black community than they have in, in sort of more mainstream society. But I think specifically with rap, when it first came about, there was that mix of seeing the genre as one that sort of spoke the, the, the gritty truth of life in urban America. And, and I think this, is, this piggybacks on a point that you often make, one that in every essence spoke truth to power. And to the extent that we saw some of those early artists, particularly in the late 80s, so the NWAs and, and people who, you know, Ice-T, the people who would say, you know, things about the police or the man or the system, to the extent that we saw those people fighting back against a racist power structure, we, we allowed um, that type of content to work its way into our house. And we said, you know what, we can control it. We can use it for our own benefit. Um, but what ended up happening is that that unwanted guest stayed longer, got bigger. We kept feeding him. And now we can't even get him out the house because he's taken over the whole house and he, he has the you know, the, the women and children running scared in the safe room. So I, I think it's one of those things where I think we thought we could keep control of the music, but um, as the artists and the, and the execs and the record company saw that there was no price to pay for making it more vulgar and more degrading, and in fact, people pay more money if you degraded them, they just said, okay, we'll, we'll keep taking their money. And I think it's up to us to say no more. We wouldn't, we wouldn't support this music if it was white people calling black women the B word or the N word. Um, there's no reason for us to support it um, just because the artists look like us. All right, today, Kanye West, or he, today or late last night, he did some little live stream of his new album, Donda, which is named after his mother, Donda West, who has passed on. And I'm, I'm someone that likes Kanye. I, I, I think he's struggling with fame. I think fame is the worst drug on the planet. And I think he's addicted to fame and, and he's struggling with it. I think he's tried to use his faith and, and belief as a Christian or I'm not as a believer. I, I won't put a label on it to try to combat that fame deal. And, and I think he's been bold in a lot of instances. I'm still not sure how I feel about him as a rap artist overall. I know Jay-Z's on this album, which has kind of surprised people uh, that Jay-Z, and I, I heard the lyrics, I listened online to some of Jay-Z's lyrics, and man, Jay-Z thinks really highly of himself, basically, you know, <laughs> he's calling himself a god and all that uh, on this album, and I'm just, it contradicts a little bit of some of the things Kanye tries to stand for, but I'm wondering how, what's your take on Kanye West? How should we feel about him? 
Kanye is a very complicated figure. Um, when he said that George Bush is racist after Katrina, his stock shot way up in our community. When he made a fool of himself at one of the music, you know, one of the award shows and uh, with the whole Taylor Swift situation, it went down a little bit. Even President Obama got on him a little bit. But when he signed on to Team MAGA and he endorsed and supported President Trump, his stock, particularly in the black community, I think, went straight through the floor. Um, that being said, I like Kanye. Um, and I like him for many of the reasons that people, other people don't like him. Um, I like the fact that he is fearless, even when I think he gets things wrong, which if you talk enough in public, that's bound to happen. Um, but the fact that he's willing to speak his mind honestly is a trait that is so rare in, in public discourse today, particularly among men, that um, is, is something that I, I just find you know, endearing in many, in many ways. I, I do think he's struggling. Um, I wouldn't be surprised that you know, even to this day, he's still struggling with the death of his mother. Because um, I, I remember, you know, it seemed, it seemed that he, he started to have some difficulties after she passed away, which is, you know, completely understandable. But even his, his, his first, I don't want to know, call it a gospel album, a Christian album, but um, his album, Jesus is King, um, the, the, one of the tracks closed on Sunday, which my kids love, by the way, um, even the 18-year-old sort of sings one of the parts. Uh, 18 month old, excuse me. But in that song, he he had lyrics, and as I as I sat and listened to it, I said, this is really a, a declaration of war against the enemy. Um, he talked about um, protecting your daughters, not allowing them to be indoctrinated, your children to be indoctrinated, raising your sons in the faith, you know, raising them to be strong men, and just protecting your home. And those are the types of themes that I, I would love to see more of. Um, in, in rap music and in hip hop culture, because what it sounded like to me was was a father who sees the, the enemy at the gate and is willing to sacrifice everything he has to keep his family safe. And that's the type of man I could respect. Um, again, his political views, are, it's interesting that a guy who has himself has some questionable lyrical content um, doesn't get canceled in the broader in the broader culture until he puts on that red hat um, with that catchphrase on it. And I think, as I said, that, that says a lot about the, the cultural border patrol that sort of decides who comes in and who comes out and who's verified and, and who needs to be expelled. But all in all, I, th I think Kanye West is, I'm gonna take is a figure. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, I was blown away looking at that live stream event in terms of mm -hmm. Kanye still has the ability to fill yeah. up a stadium just to watch him run around on a football field or on a stage vibing to his own music or whatever. I'm like, wow, this dude's ability to still attract a crowd. His charisma is that strong despite people being confused by Kanye. And, and, mm. and maybe that makes him more fascinating, is that he is confusing. He, is he a Christian? Is he, is he just a, a celebrity addicted to fame? He's, you know, d does he, Kim Kardashian, is that a real relationship or was that just a power play? He, people are fascinated by what this guy is. I don't know yeah. how many other artists 
could do what he just did in terms of attracting that kind of audience to some live stream debut of an album. They say the music industry's dead. Uh, you know, <laughs> Kanye's not. I, w- I want to end on this note, uh, Delano, just because you live in D.C., another uh, shooting right outside, not very far from the White House. It's captured on tape. The lawlessness in D.C. seems to be completely out of control. And, and I want just in D.C. specifically, but just in general, do you think progressives are do they regret yet this whole defund the police movement? I think that's a great question. Um, it's one that political scientists are going to wrestle with, you know, for years to come. Um, I'll say for DC specifically, one thing, and I will give um, credit to the mayor and the police chief. I don't ever remember them getting on the defund the police bandwagon. Um, unlike you know other mayors in other cities, and I'm thinking like in New York City and you know a couple other cities around around the country. Um, I think there's always been a desire to keep the the, the city safe, keep residents safe. Um, I will say this, as these shootings start to creep into areas um, that are considered safe, quote unquote, I think you will see a different response. One, from the, the latte liberals who felt more comfortable talking about defund the police when the shootings and the violent crime was taking place um, or was concentra- concentrated in other areas and other parts of the city that they don't have to go through. Um, I think you'll see more of that. I also think um, in many respects, the, the activist crowd will start to change their messaging around defund the police because they realize how terribly unpopular it is. And they may emphasize more of the, you know, uh, spend more money, move budget, you know, budget funding around to different social programs and social sh- services. But I don't think you're going to hear the uh, defund the police slogan um, unless it's from the most hardcore activists who are all about not just defunding the police, but abolishing the police and prison. So I'm thinking of people like Colin Kaepernick, other radical activists um, who, who share his views in terms of reimagining, quote unquote, um, you know, criminal justice and, 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 and policing. Generally speaking. I think across the country, what you're going to see is more calls for um, more police from some of the very people who who were saying defund last year. Because again, the problem with defund the police wasn't that it was a bad idea. Uh, Excuse me, it wasn't that it was a bad slogan. It was that it was a bad idea. Um, For whatever reason, people who have PhDs, who call themselves intellectuals, people who uh, run cities and, and run for office, who see themselves as you know, very learned people lack some of the basic wisdom that you could get just by opening opening up your Bible or listening to grandma for a couple for a couple days. In life, you reap what you sow. And if you sow disorder, you're going to reap lawlessness. Um, and eventually what's going to happen is that when you sow forced helplessness by pulling back um, the police and other public safety tools from communities, what you're going to get is, or what you're going to reap, are a group of vigilantes who are going to rise up. And I said this on on Twitter earlier today. Um, some people may, may are old enough to remember um, Bernard Getz or Bernie Getz, a guy from New York. He was on a subway, I think, 
a, a group of teens tried to rob him. And this was at a time when New York had a really, really bad crime problem. They had co- over a couple thousand murders every year. And he pulled out his pistol and he shot at um, a couple of the teens. And he was a sympathetic figure in, in the city. And, um, and I think if some of these cities don't get these crime issues under control, and it's not just the homicides, it's the, the assaults, it's people getting robbed and then pistol whipped. Um, it's you know sexual assaults, people getting pushed on subways, people getting sucker punched, you know, while waiting for the bus. It's all different types of crime, and it's just a general feeling of of chaos and disorder in a lot of these cities. And if that doesn't get under control, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you see somebody take take the law into their own hands. And and I I don't wish for that. Um, I don't I don't think that's an ideal situation, but. As I said, in, in life, you, you reap what you sow. And some of these politicians, and as I said, these activists who, who fashion themselves as intellectuals and really deep thinkers, um, just lack a basic understanding of, of human nature. And they don't understand that for every action, there's a, there's a, there's a reaction. And I think you're starting to see more people react. Um, I, if I could say one, one more thing, Jason, really quick. I, I think this is, an if this is an opportunity, particularly for elected officials, to start talking about, you know, new ways to help the the people who are in some of these highest crime neighborhoods, and I'll, I'll this is one idea that I'll float out there. I would be interested to see if any politician would get behind something along the lines of a, a relocation grant. So if you live in a really tough part of the city, and, and your neighborhood is one of the ones where there's the most violence, shootings, homicides. I think it would be interesting to explore whether the federal government or local government can set up a program where you could get a voucher that would basically pay for you to relocate to an area of your choice. Now you would have to secure a job and identify housing, but that would be a way to help particularly the lowest income people find a way to get their families out of the situation. Because in the same way we have failing schools and the people who have means and money and privilege will say, no, we, we, we have a commitment to government schools. While, the, while their children go to $50,000 a year schools, um, I think there should be opportunities in the same way that cities have you know, voucher programs, there should be opportunities for residents who live in high crime neighborhoods to get out um, and take their families with them to somewhere safer um, if, if they don't have any other means to do so. You know what? I'm going to hold on to that thought and we'll debate it next week at some point or I'll give you my thoughts uh, because my idea, I I hear that idea. I don't like it initially off the top of my head. You know what we need to reinstate is the draft. I'm just telling (laughs) you, people, my father was a street dude. The draft got his life together. He went to the army for two years. My uncle, street dude went to the service for a couple, got his life together, sent him on a different direction. Uh, my other uncle, my dad's brother, I was thinking about mom's uncle, street dude, mm-hmm. 20 or uh, 30 years in the Marines, got his life together. My brother, not a street dude, but 10 years in the Air Force, got his life mm-hmm. together. People aren't forced to ante up anymore, and people aren't removed from their little ghetto environments or rural environments. And, and move to a different environment and give it an opportunity to see the world from a whole different point of view and perspective. 
if, if we really want to save this country, that would be one of my first steps is reinstitute the draft. Let's take men and women up out of their environments, give them a different little outlook on life and the world. Mm. Uh, because if we start relocating people, I'm going to ask for a voucher. I want to move next door to a Hattie B's chicken spot, hot chicken <laughs> spot right here in Nashville. We're going to do that kind of relocation. I want the government mm. to pay for it. All right, go to YouTube.com slash Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Next, we're going to roll out to Texas and talk to a Texas politician about critical race theory. Next! Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. All right, let's keep it moving with a story that I've been wanting to get to all week. There's a good war actually going on across America, and I think it can best be seen in the state of Texas. I call it a good war because I think a lot of Americans have been asleep and academia has run wild and has been teaching our kids crazy things. And finally, uh, Parents, citizens, and politicians are waking up and going to war with academia about what it is we're teaching our kids. And so in Texas earlier this week, I saw this headline on the Huffington Post, uh, Texas politicians or Republicans are trying to strike down teaching that the KKK is morally wrong. Being a former journalist or being a journalist, and being aware of how the media plays games. And I, years ago, I used to write pieces for the Huffington Post. I was like, hold on, man, this, this headline does not make sense. Are people in Texas really trying to strike down teaching that the KKK is morally wrong? And so I kind of want to get to the bottom of the rest of the story. And so we're going to roll out to Texas and talk to uh, Texas State Representative Republican Steve Toth, who actually wrote the original bill defining the kind of curriculum that uh, will be taught in the state of Texas. I think Steve's was HB 3979. And so, Steve, welcome to the program. And I, I want to say I'm so glad to see this feud going on in Texas. I think this is actually healthy that this fight has begun and politicians are stepping up. Am I right for thinking this is actually a good sign that this war is going on? Yeah, this is a great discussion. It's a healthy discussion. It's a needed discussion. It's a long overdue discussion. If it wasn't for COVID, Jason, we'd, we would have no idea that any of this was even going on. It, it, it's only because of COVID that all this virtual classroom education was going on and parents had the opportunity to look over their children's shoulders and see that critical race theory was being taught. Books like this, not my idea, a book about whiteness. Seriously, we're gonna, t we're gonna have books about whiteness and blackness and brownness and yellowness and the left in some way, shape or form thinks this is healthy. This is, this is good for our kids to poison their minds with, with, with racism. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So walk us through the bill you wrote that was, I think, passed in May. And then now there's another bill that's trying to be an amendment. But walk us through the bill you wrote. So when we originally drafted that bill back in February or March, the, the caption of it was about social studies. And we, at that time, all the stakeholders in the bill thought that 
critical race theory was mainly being taught in social studies or in history classes, um, sociology classes. We had no idea it was being taught in math classes. We had no idea it was being ta taught in English classes or English lit classes. And um, so we're coming back in special session now, and we'd like to expand the bill to include all subject matter. Tell me, though, about your original bill and then oh, sure. the SB3. Yeah. This is somebody else's bill. So, so I, I just want to set a foundation of what was there originally and why there's a need for an amendment. Yeah. So the original bill, if, if you look at it, it says a teacher may not. And this is page four. It says a teacher may not be compelled to discuss um, certain things. Uh, and the reason why is that we want. We don't want compelled speech. We want free speech. We don't want to tell a teacher what they do or what they should or should not say in the classroom. So the left is saying that we're telling teachers what they can't say, which is completely not true. In fact, the bill even goes into the fact that slavery and Jim Crow was part of our past. And yet they're saying that the bill does not allow teachers to talk about slavery or to talk about Jim Crow. When in fact, it even mentions it in the bill. But if you look at the bill, it looks like something that came out of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, because it says that an individual should not be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of the individual's race or gender. Why is that not a good thing? Why do we not want that taught in the, in the schools across the state of Texas? And that's really the, the body of the bill, and that's really what the bill does. Now, there was an amendment that was put into the bill that Democrats asked for, <clears throat> And um, what it does is it, it, it talks about, you know, um, John Tellerico, Rep. Tellerico from the back, Mike, he said to me, he said, Representative Shirley will admit that racism is wrong, or I'm sorry, white supremacy is wrong. And I said, of course I would. And I'm going to truncate 15 minutes down to about 30 seconds. But um, he then said, well, won't you take an amendment to acknowledge that white supremacy is wrong? And so we wrote an amendment for him that said that white supremacy is defined by the Ku Klux Klan or eugenics. In other words, Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, which that's not critical race theory. Um, and that's not their definition of a white supremacist. If you're unwilling to admit your white privilege, if you're unwilling to admit um, that you're an oppressor, a white oppressor, you are therefore a white supremacist. Just read anything that Ibram Kendi has written in any of his writings. I mean, all of his writings. You can't, Ibram Kendi can't do an article. He can't do, he can't do an interview without calling all white people white supremacists unless they're willing to admit their white privilege. Um, it, it's just, it's sick. And so the original intent of that um, and why they took it out in SB3. I'm not quite sure why the Senate took it out. I, I don't think they understood the basic premise of what um, of what, what what critical race theorists believe white supremacy or, or white yeah white supremacy is. Well, I think part of what critical race theory argues, I think you were trying to articulate, is that that Steve Toth is responsible and benefits from all the sins from 150 years ago, from all the sins 60, 70 years ago, and that every white child that comes into a classroom, they're responsible for those sins as well. And I'm just sorry, I don't, 
Jesus died on the cross so that my sins, the ones that I committed could be forgiven. And so I'm not sure if I want to place that burden on some sixth or seventh grade child that they have to be responsible for sins that someone else committed. That's why I think it's important to reject critical race theory and what they're trying to impose on. I don't care if it's whether it's white, black, brown, yellow kids. We shouldn't be putting this burden on children or any human beings. And particularly those of us who are believers, we have to reject this. The Bible compels us to the word. The gospel compels us to. We have to do that. Help me understand then. And I I know. Can I just give you a quick story? So one of the Democrats actually sat down with me with a tear coming from his eye, emotionally, just he was wracked with anger. And he said, I hate you. And I am justified in hating you because of what your ancestors did to my ancestors. And I will hate you until you make reparations for what your ancestors did to my ancestors. Jarvis Johnson said that to me. Black Democrat from Houston. Jarvis Johnson. Yes, said that. He's another state representative like you. Yes. And he said, he told you. Yes. And I said, Jarvis, my ancestors did nothing to your ancestors. My ancestors were in Budapest, Hungary. And my grandfather, who lived in Budapest, Hungary, when he was 12 years old, was beaten relentlessly by Catholic priests because he would not join the Catholic Church. He died 20 years before he should have because of the damage, kidney damage he sustained as a young man. He fled Hungary for the United States because of the religious persecution that he and his family endured at the hand of Catholics. Now, am I justified in hating Catholics because of of the fact that they killed my grandfather? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. You like you just said what you're talking about. Yeah, what, what you're talking about, Steve, is a secular culture that doesn't believe in forgiveness. <laughs> and problem, that's a very problem, dangerous culture. The, the problem, though, Jason, is that the church is buying into this. And I don't know if you had the chance to read Vody Bakken's book, Fault Lines, but I think this is going to be the undoing of the body of Christ, because so many of these woke young pastors that have allowed this grotesque theology into their hearts and minds, and they're spewing it out to young people today that are buying into it. There's no place for the power of the grace of Jesus Christ in Romans 6 and this transformation that Romans 6 talks about in our life where the old man has been done away with, the old body of sin has been put to sleep and put to death. And we've been raised with this new body, this new, this new nature, that walks in love and grace and kindness towards one another. Critical race theory tells Christians to reject that. Steve, we talk about those issues every day on this show. Don't mind you repeating it, but finally help us understand. And I think I understand better than most how they cleverly frame this as you can't teach or they're arguing that you guys are saying you can't teach that the KKK is morally wrong. I see that as a ploy. They, they use race as a way to distract and, and to uh, distort every issue. I, I'm, what's their justification for arguing that your bill uh, forbids them from, from teachers from saying that the KKK is morally wrong? 
Well, we already have, actually. We define the Ku Klux Klan in the TEKS in the state of Texas. Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, we we clearly define what the, what, um, the Ku Klux Klan is, the KKK. We define eugenics. We already talk about it already, but the Senate wanted to take it out. I'm not quite sure why. I think their, their thinking was that it's already in the TEKS already. It's already defined as, as being evil. It's already be, being defined as being wrong. And I just think that the Senate was probably just trying to truncate the bill. But of course, the left is not going to explain it that way. Of course, the left is not going to take the, the high road and admit the obvious. Instead, they'll just use this as another opportunity to cry racist, 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 which is what they always do. They can't, they don't have a, a cogent argument to defend what they're doing in the classroom right now with books like this, not my idea, a book about whiteness. They can't defend that. And so they conflate it and they make it about something that's completely different. The other, finally, the last thing I saw in reading the story of the Austin American Statesman, my conclusion was that the SB3 bill is really trying to streamline what teachers do. Let's don't overcomplicate it. Let's don't make, let's don't put a burden on teachers that they really, it's an appropriate role for them to fill. And then I think we're like putting too much of a burden on teachers. Can we just teach reading, writing, and arithmetic and streamline things? And, and in terms of all your interpretation of history, Let's leave some of that out because people can interpret history however they want. We need students to understand that two plus two is four and that, you know, verbs and subjects need to match and kind of, and we're, we're, we're away from all of that. I just think we're asking too much of teachers and maybe teachers are trying to take on too much. We are. Um, we are. And one of the things that both S SB3 and my bill, HB 178, do is we try and truncate the amount of reading material that were that got pushed into the classroom. And we do need to distill it down so that it's a manageable size for teachers to teach. And that's that's really the objective of both bills. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Good luck. Continue the fight. God bless you, Jason. Thanks for all, all right, the YouTube.com. God bless you. YouTube.com fearless slash fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe and like button. We'll be back with more. Welcome back. Time for my favorite part of the show. Mm. Uncle Jimmy. Yes, sir. You got a Bible story? I got, I got a story for you. I got a story. Is it a Bible story? It's a, it's, it's, it's a Bible story. All right, go ahead. It, it, it's a story. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it, 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 and it's a story about faith. Okay, and it's actually it's a continuation of faith. We talked about faith last home. Earlier this week. It's a continuation of faith. And like I told you, man, faith is, is, is the one constant ingredient in God's recipe of life every day. Okay? You, it, it, the whole book is full of faith. And like, like I said mm, before... That's kind of like how Lowry's seasonal salt is a constant seasoning 
Jason, Jason we're talking about the Bible, right? Oh, now. I'm, Let, I'm let's sorry. Let's take our mind off of food and let's stick okay, to God. I'm sorry. I'm okay. sorry. Go ahead. Faith. Right. As I said, and I really got this from, Faith from McGraw. And you, you wondered, Jim, why, why do I think I'm going to hell? Well, I'm listening <laughs> to me, man. Go ahead, man. Man, what is you? What is the deal with you and always talking about faith, Biggie? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Gosh. You know what Tupac did to faith? Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Look, forgive me, Lord. Continue, Uncle. Listen, man. Yeah. Serious business. I don't really like you, crack. I'm sorry. I t- look, faith. I told you before is the evidence of things not seen, and and and, and that, that that that's really that, that that's important. Because I think that's what's wrong with a lot of kids and a lot of people nowadays in life. They don't have no faith. They just have no faith. You know, when I was in school, we sang a song that said, Jesus, what? Loves me. Oh, I thought. See, you ask a kid nowadays, Jesus, what? They're going to say, Jesus, walk. Jesus, twerk. No, Jesus, love me. Yes, Jesus. Okay, but here's the thing about that song. We sang that song in school. Not only did we sing it in school, we sang it in church. Now, growing up when I grew up, that was one of the few things black and white people agreed upon, was that Jesus loved me. So therefore, that's how I was raised up. That's me and God had a, he, he was a part of my everyday life. Me and God was boys. We talk on a constant. And that brings me to my story. And today my story is going to come from the book of James. And it's, it, 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 it goes back to a little town in Kansas. The, the, the Bible said that it was a little town called Wyandotte. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a little club at this, in Kansas called the Burning Bush. <laughs> or the Firelight. <laughs> or later change the name to the Firelight. Oh, boy. All right. This is Saturday night at the firelight. Oh, boy. And on this night, and I promise you, and I mean this with all sincerity, man, as a DJ, it was one point of the night to where I stood up and I looked around, and it was the most, I mean this, it was the most magical night that I'd ever had as a DJ as far as the crowd and being up, being up and moving, and everybody was up, just it, I, I described it to somebody like, I got a Woody. That's how great the crowd, that's, how, that's the experience I got. And no sooner as that happened, a voice came to me and said, how you doing, man? And this is with the music and everything. I said, I'm cool, I'm good. He said, uh, how long have we been doing this? And I had to think for a minute, and I said, man, we've been doing this eight, almost 10 years. He said, And every time you've walked in this club, I've been with you, ain't I? I said, yes, sir. He said, okay. He said, that's what I need to tell you. If you come in here again, I'm not going to be with you. Music's playing. Next song comes on, man. The next thing that comes out of my mouth, I mean, without thinking, I said, this is my last night here, Firelight. And I played the next song, and the next song was a song by R. Kelly called Trade In My Life For You. And there's a part in that song where R. Kelly says, I love my music and I love my fans, but I got to stand back and look at this thing 
like it sure enough is. Well, by this time, the manager of the club comes up to me and he said, Jimmy, what the hell's going on? What you doing? I said, I don't know, man. God said, that's it. He said, it's got to go. I got to go. And he said, you know, I'm good. He said, I, I respect that. People in the club was upset. They're like, man, what are you doing? What's wrong? Curtis, pay this man more money. I had to tell the crowd after that song was over, I said, listen, this ain't got nothing to do with Curtis. This is bigger than Curtis. God told me it's time to go. I told this to the crowd. I said, it's time to go. And what we're going to do, we're going to enjoy this night. And that's it. I'm done. And we enjoyed that night. And that night was over. And the next night came, which was Saturday, which is always our biggest night. So now this is where faith comes in because people here, everybody in the club heard what I, I'm, I'm done. Jimmy Dodds ain't done with this club. He's been doing this for 10 years. He'll be back. Whew. I'm holding it tight. I'm good. And I start getting a call from a female friend. And this wasn't just no female friend. This was a female friend that I'd been trying to make my move on. I'd been trying to get her to come on back to the sugar shack with me. And she a said, M&M. at that time, she was just a regular M&M, bro. <laughs> Trust me. She would have got ate the hell up. <laughs> Listen here, man. I'm telling you. She starts calling me. She said, Jimmy, come on down to the club. I said, I'm done. She said, no, just come on down and just play one more time. She said, I tell you what. She said, if you come down here and play, she said, I'll go back home with you. Whew. I ain't where I'm at now, but I think God will understand if I just go back one more time just to. Not even for the whole night, because now it's getting. To, she said, she called me twice. She said, Jimmy, it's 1230. She said, you got to hurry up and get down here. Club closed at 130. <sighs> I get dressed. I decide I'm hurry up and run on out the door because I can do this one time. I ain't really going back. to. I'm just going back to for a minute. And just about the time I hit the door. God said, turn around and look at the TV. I looked at TV and the TV um, had a breaking report. And the report said that uh, we had a shooting at a local nightclub in Kansas City. Said three were shot and one's confirmed dead. And when they showed the picture, the picture was exactly right there where I used to park at. And they actually showed the body. And actually, the dude that got shot was my neighbor that lived up under me. And the dude that shot him was my buddy that worked at the club. And God said to me, he said, if you'd have been at that club, you'd have been right there in the middle of that mess. And you would have been trying to stop them. And you would have been laying right there. See, man, don't tell me about faith. Don't tell me that Jesus is a white man's God and don't tell me that. Don't tell me about that. See, I know Jesus loves me. And I know that if it wasn't for God loving me. I wouldn't be here today. And I'm here because I have faith. And that's all I can say, man. I cannot. Touch that story. I will say this. It's been a long time. I've heard it before. Uh, 
But I'm glad you shared that story, Uncle Jimmy. It's all about faith, man. I'm also glad that we're going to take a little short break so Uncle Jimmy can <clears throat> recuperate. 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 You know what I'm saying? And That's all. Back. And we're going to do our approval uh, rating. We get back to it. It's all good. It's going to take two seconds. That's and we'll all. We'll be right back Give me with two. the approval rating. All right, then. Jim, I got to say, it was an incredible Bible story, moving, but we got to do our approval rating. <laughs> We're going to do it on DeAndre Hopkins. That's an amazing how you changed your hair. Or was that hair all underneath your hat or, or, or what? Uh, what's going, are you DeAndre Hopkins' little brother or what? No, I'm, I'm exactly who the hell I am. I'm Uncle Jimmy. I told you earlier in this show, hey, man, I'm with this brother, man. I'm all with this brother all the way, man. If I'm going to walk with him, if I'm going to talk with him, hey, man, I'm with him, man. Hey, I'm, I'm all about it, man. Come on. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Uh, job performance, Jim. Uh, oh, we got some equality here. I've got DeAndre at a 23 in job performance. You have him at a 23 in job performance as well. That's right. That's right. Nobody else does that job like that man. Trust me. I love that man. Nobody does that job like him, man. You think he misses Deshaun Watson? Is Kyler Murray? You think Kyler Murray uh, man, let me has tell the hookup? All, 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 all I say about that matter as far as Deshaun Watson is, I say Deshaun Watson is in the same category. He's in the same category as the, uh, what's this boy's name we talking about? DeAndre, DeAndre Hopkins. Hopkins. He in the same category. Uh, uh, Deshaun Watson just need a shot. <laughs> oh, he just need a shot. I got it. All right. Uh, I would put him in the same category as Robert Kraft. Maybe he, need we to be, maybe he need to be more like DeAndre and say maybe he needs to refuse the shot, but we'll see. <laughs> All right, let's go to character here. Uh, I have DeAndre. I kind of like DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, he's certainly a man of his words and kind of fearless. So I have him at a 19. Uh, you have him at a perfect score of 25. Damn right. In character. In uh, character. Yeah. yeah. That man's about that life. <laughs> you think a man going to walk around with his head looking like this and he not going to be about that life? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Don't get no more authenticized than this. Oh, you've already moved to authenticity. We both, we're in agreement here. We both got him high authenticity. I give him a 21 in authenticity. You give him a 23. I'm about that life, son. <laughs> about that life. <laughs> I can't. All right, let's go to it factor. I'm not, I'm going middle of the road. The hair kind of makes him, uh, he's got some kind of it factor. You can certainly recognize him anywhere you see him. Uh, so I'll go with a 15 it factor. You've got him at a 23. Hell to the yeah. For real. I mean, I don't know what your problem is. I mean, you're talking about he got the it factor. He does have the it factor. I don't know what the hell it is, but whatever it is, that shit gonna get him fired. I promise you. <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> I need to know where the hell he gonna go get a job at with a hairdo looking like this. He don't need a job. He's made like 85 million bucks, I think, or something. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, bottom line. You, you with DeAndre? You've got him at a blazing hot 94. I've got him smoking. Smoke show 78. Smoking. Hold it up, D. For real. Don't let him give you a shot in your ass if you don't want it. You're a grown ass man, dog. I should salute him.
All right, we gotta go. That's it. That's all. No negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seeds when we all wanna be free. We want.